by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are coming to you live, sort of, from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. To the phone lines we go. Adnan Verk joins us now on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Adnan. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Jason, pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, so let's talk about the Rangers. And the most important part of all of this is that they've escaped the sad club. Now, I think we've talked about the sad club with you before. Uh, my co-host, Jason Bruff, is the commissioner of sad, sad club, sad club. And it is reserved for teams that uh, have not won a championship in their respective sport, but they had to be around for a long time, you know, 40 to 50 years. 40 years is the entry to the club. Canucks are at 50 plus. The Rangers were part of that club in Major League Baseball. They are out. Uh, I got to ask you, how much relief did you feel from people around the organization, fans of this team, that they were finally able to get over the hump, erase the demons from 2011, and finally win a World Series? Well, I love the idea of the SAG Club because you're right. There's something when you look at certain franchises and say that they've never won a World Series, it's very, very tough on the fan base. And you mentioned the players and everybody involved. I mean, having been in Texas and seeing – George W. Bush throwing out a pitch. By the way, it bounced to which I did predict that they don't want it anymore. Yvonne Rodriguez interviewing him. Nolan Ryan, uh, you know, in and around the streets and stuff. I mean, it makes you appreciate the Texas Rangers history and just how long they've had the team. 62 years, first World Series, and specifically, honestly, the, the memories of 2011. Like, this is a Texas team, which, unbelievable road warriors. If that stands up to me, just 11-0 on the road this postseason is unheard of and unprecedented and record-breaking. And this series, after two games, like Arizona should have won that first game. If not for Seager's heroics, getting a ninth-inning home run off Paul Seawold and then going ahead of the 11th, thanks to Garcia, you know, they'd be down 2-0 because game two was a real route 9-1. to And you really felt like, well, you know, my series prediction was Rangers in five, which I'm thrilled to announce was correct. Should have put some money down. But after that first two games, you go, well, hey, Arizona, we got a series here. Like, at the very least, it's a best of five Arizona's at home. And I think if you're a Rangers fan, you start to say the same old story again. We're the favorite. We should win. But now we could be into trouble. And instead, they completely didn't even blink. I mean, game three was a taut game. 3-1, played well. Game four, they put up 11 runs. Arizona gets back in the game. But the final score is misleading. And then yesterday, again, terrific pitching from both starters. They get just enough offense. And they will push it aside. So, to your point, Mike, I think there's a new Exorcist movie in theaters. Didn't do as well as the original 50th anniversary. So the Rangers exercised the demons specifically of 2011 and that game six. Twice they were one strike away from the World Series. We all know about Nelson Cruz unable to catch that ball and right. Now they can finally show the memories of Corey Seager every time they talk about the World Series and erase the pain of 2011. Back in 2021, just two years ago, the Rangers only won 60 ball games. They improved to 68 the following year, and then they won the World Series. How, how do they do it? If there, if there are other teams in, in, in a bad situation right now, are there any lessons that can be applied from the Texas Rangers winning the World Series? Well, quite simply, Jason, they spent money. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. Hello, Seattle Mariners. Spend money. Yeah, I mean, listen, their payroll was $150 million a year ago, and this year – it was $250 million. They increased payroll by $100 million in one year. And specifically, 
Chris Young, the GM, the former player, worked for MLB as well, smart guy, said, I'm just going to focus on the key players and get it done. He spent half a billion dollars on two guys, 325 for Seager and 175 for Marcus Simeon. And we asked him, you know, you have that kind of money at your disposal. Ownership says, go for it. Why wouldn't you spend $100 million here, $100 million there? Like, go get a top closer, go get a starter, you know, spread your wealth. And he said, trades are a lot harder than you realize. And when star players are available, it makes more sense just to lock them up for long years and to get that term taken care of. And Seager was just incredible this postseason. I mean, to think he's won World Series MVP twice, also did it back with the Dodgers. I mean, this is Reggie Jackson-type, you know, category, of able to be an MVP twice. And he was just he was incredible. I mean, all those home runs, man, six home runs in the World Series, most ever by a, you know, middle infielder and a, most ever by shortstop, specifically in the Fall Classic. It, it's awesome. He, he certainly vindicated the 325. And Simeon, for 175, plays a great defense, struggled mightily this postseason. And yet his final two games, he was at his best. You know, game four, two-run triple, home run as well. Then yesterday he drove in a run. You saw his emotion when Simeon hit that home run yesterday. He never shows emotion, ever. And he was pretty fired up running first base for good reason. So, honestly, they spent. Now, it's one thing to say, Jason, they spent. Other teams spend. They don't spend well. The top three teams in payroll ahead of Texas <laughs> are the Mets, the Yankees, the Padres, and none of those teams made the playoffs. So you got to spend wisely. And the other part of it is this. When plan A starts to go, quickly have a plan B and C. They signed DeGrom with the intention of making him their ace. He's one of the top pitchers in baseball. Then he pitched 30 innings this year. Again, it hurt Tommy John. And you thought at that point, well, Texas is done. But Chris Young smelled blood in the water. He said, no, no, we can get this done here. Houston's vulnerable. The Yankees aren't playing well particularly. The Rays, maybe they'll fold. Let's go get this done. Let's not go get one pitcher. Let's get two. So the trade deadline, they get Max Scherzer, who, again, was very good for them down the stretch and then was unavailable come playoff time. You know, game three, he pitched three innings. That's it. Uh, LCS, he got shelled. So... But they got Jordan Montgomery, and Montgomery was amazing for them in the playoff run. So they're pitching-wise. It really was Montgomery and Evaldi who carried them early, but then guys like John Gray, who they signed for $56 million a couple of years ago, and Andrew Heaney, who stepped up big time in game four. So I really think it was about spending money and also having, like I said, a plan B and a C. Don't just go get one ace. Go get three starting pitchers because these guys will get hurt. Adnan, there are three remaining members of the SAD club. The Rockies and the Rays haven't qualified yet because they haven't been around long enough. But we got yeah. the Padres, the Brewers, and the Mariners. Of those three, who is most likely to escape the SAD club next? Well, it's not the Mariners, unfortunately. And by the way, of those five, I mean, the, the Mariners are the saddest ones to me For because sure. they've never even made the World Series, yep. right? At least, as you said, the Rays have been around that long and they made the World Series in 2020 and Obviously, the Rockies had their Rocktober moment, but like Seattle's never had a World Series. And uh, obviously, my tag team partner, Harold Reynolds, with the All World Series, he's Mr. Mariner. We had King Griffey Jr. on yesterday. And, you know, I asked Griffey as far as, you know, top five teammates, Harold, that he last at all, of course. But the guys he started listing makes me realize how long Seattle's been around. It was like you know, Alvin Davis, Jay Buhner, and, and, and earlier in the series, we had Randy Johnson on. So Seattle's been around. And uh, I think that's the saddest of that group. The ones to escape. It'll be San Diego and Milwaukee. Milwaukee's a perennial team to at least win their division. And especially in that division, they're substantially strong, and they've got great starting pitching with Burns, Peralta, and Woodruff. So Milwaukee's always going to be in the playoffs. 
It's a matter of getting enough offense, and they're going to spend some money because they're like you know twenty fifth in payroll. So they could use a little Chris Young Rangers money and actually spend and go get some hitters. But I think it's San Diego now. They of course spent, as I just said, they were top three in payroll. Did not work out, but it's still mystifying to me that they were not able to be more successful. Their pitching was excellent, particularly Blake Snell, who's going to win the Cy Young. Uh, Hater obviously is their closer, but couldn't get the right magic going offensively. You know, Machado was hurt off and on this year. Tatis is great, inconsistent at times. Soto started out slow, but then was excellent. A really good year. But otherwise, they weren't very good. You know, they're very top-heavy in terms of their offense. Hassan came great defensively, didn't give them much offense. Quarterworth up and down, et cetera. So I think of that list, it's San Diego or Milwaukee. And uh, I don't know how long it's going to take, though. I don't know if they're going to win the World Series next year. So could be a little time. We're speaking to Adnan Burke from MLB Network here on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, the Bruce Bochy story, very cool. A lot of people uh, mentioning just what a great thing it was that he came off the recliner out of retirement to go back into coaching and take the Rangers all this way. So is Bochy now a sort of surefire, no-doubter, 100% Hall of Fame coach when he decides to retire again? Oh, for sure, Mike. I already thought he was, but now he's on an illustrious list. He's just the sixth manager ever to win four World Series. And I give him more credit because he's done it with different teams. Took the Padres to the World Series in 98. They fell flat against the Yankees. But the three World Series with San Francisco and then Texas this year. And that World Series yesterday was 13 years ago to the day that the Giants ended their long World Series hex and they won back in 2010. So Bochy was able to deliver a World Series title in San Francisco, which they had not enjoyed in a long time. Then he was able to do it for the Rangers we had never won a World Series before. Again, first time in 62 years. So that list he's on is, you know, Casey Stengel and Joe McCarthy and Joe Torrey and Walter Alston. Like, it's, it's old school names. And again, the three of those guys are Yankees. Like, you know, they had their runs with one team. For me, Bochy with three different teams and able to win four different titles speaks volumes about his success. And he's 68 years of age. I mean, every time you saw him go out to the mound, you're always like, oh, my God, this is tough to watch. You know, He's not the same man as far as his gait is concerned. But anytime you ask him a question, he's very sharp. Like most baseball people, their recall is amazing, right? What pitch did you throw here? What happened in that game back in July? And Bochy's like that. So even though he's 68 years of age, he's very, very sharp. And, you know, talking to the players, he just has a really good feel for the team and, and making each player accountable and comfortable and a part of the team. And, their bullpen guys was so bad late in the year. I remember they lost 16 of 20 games at one point, <laughs> yeah. August and September. And their bullpen was on fire. Like, I said, how the hell is this team going to win? There wasn't anybody who was Texas going to win the World Series. But Bochy's got bullpen magic, man. He knew how to pull the levers and how to kind of pull the right strings. And he just, yesterday, he went with Spores, who has been fantastic. I interviewed him. He had like a five-year array, I think, in the regular season. And it was .85 in the playoffs. So, like, Bochy knows how to ride the hot hand when a guy's going. LeClerc ended up being a closer who wasn't that guy for much of the year. Chapman, who every time was in the game, was a higher wire act. But Bochy knew when he could use him. Like, a couple outs here or there, and then that's it. Get rid of him and do what you can. So, I think he just got such a great feel for the game. And to win another World Series first year coming off the recliners, he said, Mike, that's pretty extraordinary. You know what I like doing after teams won a World Series is to look back on their season and count how many times the fan base would have been like, that's it, we're screwed, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Like the Rangers had that terrible time in during the regular season after that really hot start where it looked like they might not even make the playoffs. 
And then probably the big one for me was when they went home with a 2-0 lead over the Astros, and they lost all three games. Can you imagine how that felt? Like, what the fan base was thinking then? They were like, we are never going to win a World Series. Like, and no, then, you're absolutely right. And, and, like, no, it's I'm always fun. fun to do that. And I think that a, a lot of the time speaks volumes about the leadership on the team when you're able to find a way to overturn momentum going against you. Yeah, you're right. I'd say there's at least four times this year. I would say the DeGrom injury, you go, well, they might make the playoffs. They win the World Series by DeGrom. I'd say that 16 of 20, anytime in there you want to pick, except they're both on blue, you go, they're done. I would say the final day of the regular season. When all they had to do was beat the Mariners and they lose one nothing, this vaunted offense couldn't score one run, and thus they knew they had to go on the road and be a wild card team. You go, oh my God, you could have been, could have the bye, you could have been the Astros and just hung out and waited to see who you're going to be. Instead, now you're going to go on the road. There's no chance they're going to win. Instead, they took care of business against Baltimore. Never looked back. I mean, it was like two weeks. I think before they got home again, it was like you know, 7,000 miles in the air and all the rest of it. <laughs> and you're right. That fourth one was the Astros. You said, okay. Because after 2-0, you saw Houston's done. You know, nobody wins four to five games in the playoff series. And for the Astros to rip off three straight defending World Series champions, silver boot series, as they call it, Texas and Houston, two teams with plenty of animus against each other. I'm with you. At that point, you go, eh, well, defending World Champions. Ashes have been there. Texas, no experience. Uh, pitching's not quite good enough. Like, yeah, they're done. I'm with you. I, I think the Rangers fans would have had at least four times this year. They would have punted in the year instead of the steady hand of Bruce Bochy. And again, their offense. You know, I, I love the fact Arizona sacrificed bunt. I love the fact they were stealing bases. It was cool to see. But ultimately, guys, and I don't necessarily know if this is a good thing for baseball, but the teams that hit the more home runs win. Teams mm-hmm. that out homer this, this postseason were 25-4. and four. And simply put, Texas bashes the ball, hits more home runs than Arizona, and that's probably why they won the game. Also, the team that scored first when Texas and Arizona won every game this postseason, like, that's crazy to me. So, like, as a baseball fan, I'm like, oh, that's like basketball. If a team goes on a 10-0 run, there's no point in watching. They're never going to relinquish the lead. That's what it was like, which is kind of odd, that Texas and Arizona, both unbeaten. Texas, I think, was 11-0 when they scored the first run this postseason. Arizona was 7-0. So, uh, it, it's interesting. Even as you look at the game of baseball changing and more stolen bases, again, it was refreshing to see Arizona sack bunting. Although I will say, guys, yesterday, Gabriel Moreno, the former Blue Jay, they had two on. He's your number three hitter, and he bunted. I'm like, come on, man. Like that, <laughs> that's from like, you got to swing away. Like, that's, again, I can appreciate yep. small ball, but he bunted, and then it was a strikeout and a ground out, and that was it. Threat was over. I mean, Arizona, they went 0 for 11. Um, with uh, sorry, they were 0 for 9 runners in the scoring position. They left 11 guys on base. So full credit for Texas for being a World Series champion. But like we'll look back years from now, oh, they took care of them, dispatched them in five. I'm like, oh, but they they definitely had their moments. They're vulnerable. Arizona just is an 84 win team. And quite bluntly, I, I think it's a good thing in some ways they didn't win because then you you say, well, what is the point? And you made this point last week, Mike. You had three teams that won 100 games and they only won one playoff game. So part of me says, yeah, it's cool to have an underdog. It was definitely unpredictable. But I don't like that even 84-win team winning the World Series because clearly you weren't the best team in the regular season. You just got a hot at the right time. So ultimately, Texas gets it done. And I think, again, for much of the year, they were a first-place team. It does make sense. The Rangers are World Series champions. There was some crazy stat uh, from yesterday's game where Evaldi had thrown like 43 pitches 
with runners in scoring position and Arizona oh. had not scored a run, obviously. Like that's, 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 first of all, that's a remarkable stat, but also some pretty clutch pitching from the Texas Rangers starter. So listen, we don't have to talk ourselves into this world series being a classic or even good or even compelling, like congratulations to the Texas Rangers, but the world series was, you know, it was, it was disappointing, right? When it's over in five games, um, you know, the, uh, you know, we don't have to talk ourselves into it being a classic, but overall looking back on the year for major league baseball, was it a good year for major league baseball? Oh, without question. Honestly, Jason, we had Rob Manfred on yesterday, the commissioner, and I know he's going to have all the, the talking points and say how rosy a picture it was, but it's true. I mean, attendance was up 10%. I said, anytime you can say 70 million fans watched baseball games, how can that not be a good thing? And the pace of play was an enormous success. In the regular season, it was two hours and 40 minutes for game time. That was shaving off almost 25 minutes. And in the postseason, which I think is where it really is important, it's one thing to say, well, those dog days in July and August went a little quicker. No, no. Playoffs and it really matters. And last year, the postseason games were three hours and 22 minutes. And this year it was 3 uh, You know, last night was a tidy, efficient game. That game, three World Series game, and again, I'm here, you know, I was on the road for all of it, which is very special for me. My first World Series in nine years. Like, it was a little bit atypical because Arizona, it's like 80 and sunny outside. Remarkable weather. And the roof is open, and the game starts at 5.05 local, and it's done at 7.45. Like, this is insane. I can't believe the game is done, and it's not even 11 o'clock Eastern. So I think the pace of play, the fact that games were in the playoffs three hours and one minute, which is unheard of, uh, I think that's a huge success. And as far as the actual, that's, you know, that's the pace of play, but actually the play itself, more stolen bases to me was exciting. You know, the pitchers unable to throw over as much, less disengagements. I do still think the game is very home run dependent, and that's not necessarily a good thing. It's like saying, well, again, watching a basketball game, well, a team that gets more threes wins. I'm like, well, let's just shoot threes. It's the same thing for, for baseball. Let's just hit home runs. Like, what else is the point of this? There's no point scratching out offense. But Arizona proved a different way can get you there with small ball, at least in the World Series. But, yeah, overall, Jason, I'd say it was a really strong year. And, and I think it is good to have baseball in non-traditional markets. Like, again, Texas had never won. Arizona hadn't been in a World Series in 22 years. But I do share your sentiment on the World Series overall. Like, going in, we were joking, right? Saying, well, Fox executives, this is not great for them. They wanted Philadelphia and at least one East Coast team or a West Coast team like L.A. It didn't happen. But I said it matters if the games are competitive and if you have length. I said, if it goes six or seven, and the games are always within two or three runs, it'll be a great series. But as you pointed out, it only went five, and a couple of those games were blowouts. So it was not a great World Series, but it was great baseball overall this year. Adnan, you're the best, man. Thanks a lot for doing this today. We really appreciate it. We'll do one final hit to put an official bow on this MLB season next week. But for now, get some rest. Enjoy whatever is left of the celebrations, and we'll do this again in seven days' time. Thanks so much, Mike, Jason. I uh, have a hike planned here, so I'm going to enjoy uh, my last little bit of sunshine here in Arizona before I get back and look chatting. Uh, look forward to chatting one more time next week. Take care. Yep, thanks, Adnan. Appreciate it. That's Adnan Virk from MLB Network here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We have a couple minutes here before we're going to go to break and then turn things over back to hockey with Curtis Pashelka, San Jose Sharks beat writer. I did want to mention, because we had it in the notes, and it's been playing on the screens pretty much all morning, uh, Bobby Knight passed away yesterday at the age of 83. For those of you that aren't familiar with his work, the Hall of Fame basketball coach, best known for his incredibly lengthy and incredible successful stint at Indiana University. Also known as one of the most polarizing coaches 
in the history of sports. Never mind basketball, sports. Also, as the very conflicting and very polarizing and very juxtaposed legacy, um, one of the most successful Mm -hmm. and not one of the most well-loved, to put it mildly. This is a guy, and there's a book called Season on the Brink uh, by John Feinstein, who's one of my favorite authors of all time. And Feinstein gets unprecedented access to the 1985-86 Indiana Hoosiers basketball team. I highly recommend everyone go read it because it is a remarkable... Was that the one that went undefeated? Yeah, and that was... No, the one in the 70s was the one that went undefeated. This was one of the teams... I can't remember if they won the title that year or if they were pushing for it, but Mm -hmm. this is when um, Indiana is at its peak as a collegiate basketball power. Bob Knight is at his peak as... One of the, again, not just best basketball coaches. He but just coached regarded, the Olympics too, right? Why, Michael Jordan, the 84 Olympic mm. team. Widely regarded as one of the most influential, powerful, uh, demanding coaches ever. When the book came out and you got that peek behind the curtain, it really showed what a sarcastic and violent-tempered coach Bob Knight was that all of this success that he had. And remember it was and unparalleled at the time. He was often associated with winning. That winning came at a huge cost, personal relationships, belittling players. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of represented an era of coaches who were like that though. Right. Authoritarians, dictator like. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we had him in hockey, right? A guy like Mike Keenan. Mm-hmm. Lou Pinella in baseball. Yeah. Feinstein. Like that type of that type of personality, and that's what they felt a coach needed to do. Feinstein later said that Bob Knight was the most black and white person he'd ever met in his entire life. That mm-hmm. that's the way that he operated. There's a right way and a wrong way and nothing in between. And when you live your the life right way like, happens to be my way. And when you mm-hmm. live your life like yeah. that, though, you get very polarizing results. If you live a polarizing life where everything is black and white and there's no gray. Four passes before every shot. No exceptions. If your life is led by that regimented a philosophy and approach, inevitably you're going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. And And he had a falling out with Indiana. Falling out with pretty much everybody. There was a very close-knit circle. Do you know uh, Gene Hackman's character in Hoosiers was largely based on Bob Knight's personality? Right. And also, like, remember, who, what was his name? Coach Dale? He he had a... Norman Dale. Yeah, you, you pass the ball four times before a shot. Yeah. Like, that was... this. I, I was doing some research last night, and the screenwriter said a lot of it was based on Bob Knight. But grow, So, growing up, um, and I had, like, a subscription to Sports Illustrated, and I was obviously into a lot of different sports other mm. than just hockey. I think it's hard to really comprehend that Bob Knight was a figure that was beyond just a coach. He was, in, in a lot of ways... Iconic and not for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Iconic for tossing a chair across the floor. Iconic for berating his players publicly. But that's why some people loved him, and that's why some people hated him. And it's a very, very complex legacy that he's left behind. You never want to speak ill of people right in the aftermath of them passing, but you'd be doing a disservice to the full story if you didn't. Mm-hmm. Because Bob Knight was not a beloved character. He was not well, he a was, figure. He was by some people. But he wasn't he, by a lot of people. Yeah. And that's a very, very tough thing I to try I think he and... wants his legacy to be that, though. Like, he doesn't want his legacy to be like, everyone loved me, right? Well, do you hear the quote we played in the intro? Yeah, well, yeah. you can play it again <laughs> on the way out because um, that really did 
sum up uh, Bobby Knight. Uh, Curtis Pichelka is going to join us next. We'll talk about this San Jose Sharks team that the Canucks better not lose to tonight. Let me just put it that way. Uh, the Sharks are bad, um, but hopefully there's a plan in there somewhere for the organization. We'll talk to Curtis about that. Coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. I'm on earth is gone and my activities here are past i want they bury me upside down and my critics can kiss my talking all canucks all the time it's canucks talk with jamie dodd and thomas drance subscribe and download the show on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Sportsnet 650. Alfred Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Curtis Pichelka is going to join us in just a moment here to talk a little San Jose Sharks ahead of tonight's game in San Jose, Canucks and Sharks. I also want to say we are now in the midst of hour two, and we apologize profusely to all of our listeners who could not get their Halbro fix this morning. Because the radio was down and the live stream was down. Our pets' heads were falling off. It was a tough 90 minutes to start the show. However, there's still some positivity. House of optimism here. One, hour one of the show is still available for podcast It is. It just went up. I recommend listening to it at five times the speed. That way you'll get caught up very quickly and you can join (laughs) us live. Plus Plus it'll sound hilarious. Now... We are going to continue running our contest promos for today. If you want tickets to see the Canucks Oilers Monday, November 6th from Rogers Arena, text into the Dunbar Lumber text line with a what we learned, hashtag it WWL, and put a ticket emoji into your text. If you want tickets to see Kiss, yes, Kiss, on Wednesday, November 8th at Rogers Arena, uh, text in Dunbar Lumber text line 650-650. Put a music note emoji into your text, and you'll be entered into the contest. Not a grand prize draw, but a contest to win some tickets. Got it? Good. Okay. Connects will take on the Oilers on Monday, November 6th. Tonight, they'll be taking on the San Jose Sharks. For more on the Sharks, uh, San Jose beat writer from the Bay Area News Group, Curtis Pashelka here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Curtis. How are you? Mike, Jason, how how are you? Uh, we're good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. You know, we catch you at a time where uh, the Sharks are not in a good way. I know you've been on the beat for a while and you've been covering this team for a while. Do you ever remember a team that's gotten off to this bad of a start and looks this poor in Sharks history? <laughs> you have to probably go back to the Cow Palace days, yeah, uh, or something like this. I mean, you know, back when they uh, first came in the league in the early nineteen nineties. I mean, I think I think all Sharks fans knew, and I think the Sharks themselves knew that this was going to be a really tough year uh, for them, as they, you know, after they traded Eric Carlson, after they traded Timo Meyer, uh, that this was going to be sort of the uh, official start of the rebuild if it hadn't really started already. But you know, nine goals in nine games, you know, just one overtime loss or one shootout loss to to show for it so far. You know, this has gone. I think this has gone beyond what everybody might have first feared what was going to happen. So, uh, no, no, the answer is, you know, you can't really remember a time when it's it's been quite this bad. I mean, I think 
Um, you know, there's there's a lot of new faces here. There's still a lot of transition going on, um, but uh, but this is uh, this is as bad as, as it's been here in, in quite some time. How hard is it for business of the San Jose Sharks? I imagine a lot of fans are kind of like, "Well, tell me when you're good again." Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think the Sharks, um, you know, they've sold you know, just over 8,000 full season equivalents in, in terms of season tickets. Um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a considerable drop off from sort of the team's heyday, you know, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, where they had, you know, close to 13 or 12 or 13,000, uh, season tickets. And, you know, tonight will probably be, you know, not a, not a bad crowd, but still sparse by a lot of NHL team standards, uh, Saturday's game against, Pittsburgh is, is pretty much sold out when Eric Carlson comes back. So it's off and on. You know, weekend games tend to do a lot better than um, than weekday games, of course. But, uh, yeah, when, you, when, you're, when you're in a market that has the 49ers and the Warriors and, and uh, you know, so college football and, and, and Major League Baseball, it's kind of hard to, to stand out. So you, you kind of need to try to keep a, a decent product on the ice to keep people interested. And it's just been a tough go here for the last four or five years. Are the hardcore fans happy with the, let's call it like the extreme direction that the San Jose Sharks are taking? Because, you know, here in Vancouver, there have been times over the years when uh, the fan base said, strip this whole thing down, get elite talent in the draft, and rebuild aggressively and the proper way. Now, that never happened in Vancouver. Um, are people generally happy with the direction that the Sharks are taking? Yeah, I think there's there's a, a feeling of at least there's a plan. I mean, at least there's something in, in, in store right now where you've got sort of an outlook, you, you have a plan of what you want to do and when you want to try to come out of it. Or as maybe towards the end of, of Doug Wilson's tenure, there was still, you know, let's, let's see, uh, you know, let's see if we can hang in there and maybe, uh, you know, catch a few breaks and make a run out of the playoff spot. And, you know, it just didn't quite work out. And I think it delayed the rebuild, uh, you know, at least um, to where they should be right now is, you know, when you, when you put that off, uh, for a couple more years, then it it takes a couple more years to come out of it. So, you know, I think I think Sharks fans are can see where where uh, where this is going, where they hope to see it's going to you know, going to be going in the next two three years. So, um, you know, I think I think they're accepting of the fact that you know that the glory days are over, and now it's time to sort of restock the cupboards and and try to make another uh, another go of it here and over the next three or four years. We're speaking to Curtis Pashelka from the Bay Area News Group here on the Hoffman Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Curtis is a San Jose Sharks beat writer. The Canucks are in San Jose tonight, 7.30 puck drop. You can hear it all right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Curtis, look, the record is what it is. It's 0-8-1. They're the only winless team in the NHL. But I have to say, there aren't many NHL teams that have had a tougher go over their first nine games of the season. They had to go Vegas, Colorado, Carolina, and Boston in, in their first four games. That's a tough road there. That You could say those are four of the best five teams in the NHL right there. Then the Sharks went out on a five-game road swing through Nashville, Florida, Tampa Bay, Carolina, Yes, they're winless, but is this team maybe not as bad as the record shows because the competition has been so stiff? I think I think it's a, that's a fair analysis. I mean, you saw the game against the the Capitals on on Sunday there, and you know that first period was probably their best period of the, of the season in terms of the amount of 
scoring chances they were creating, um, you know, the way they sort of matched up against that team. You know, Washington's sort of a kind of a middling team, so they're not they're not quite to the level of, of a Vegas or a Colorado or a Carolina. So that was a that was a, sort of a game that probably the Sharks had their best chance to win and. And so, you know, that's certainly a fair uh, fair analysis there. And as they kind of start this homestand here, you know, obviously a tough uh, game against, you know, tonight against Vancouver. But you look a little bit beyond that. And, you know, you've got a game against the struggling Penguins team. You've got a game against a, a Flyers team that's also in a rebuild. And then Edmonton comes in next week as well. And and uh, they're off to sort of an up-and-down start. Well, kind of a tough start from, from there for a vantage point so it does let up a little bit here we'll, we'll get a sort of a fair indication uh, of where this team really is but you've also got some injuries to deal with right now with Logan Couture out and Alexander Barabanov out so um, that doesn't help their cause so it's just going to be it's just going to be tough all the way around no, no matter who this team who this team plays here in the near future have you chatted with guys like Thomas Hurdle Hurdle and Logan Couture about <laughs> what the team is going through. Uh, Couture's 34 years old. Um, chances are this this might be his last NHL team and he just might go out on a pretty bad team. Uh, Thomas Hurdle's a little bit younger. He made the decision to sign long-term, and I'm just wondering if he's uh, got any regrets about that decision. Well, we we talked to him at the beginning of the year, and, and uh, you know he says he just wants to sort of not concentrate on on what's uh, what you know the rebuild and what the team is experiencing right now. He just wants to sort of play out this year, um, see how things go, and you know sort of you know assess things maybe at uh, the next off season. You know, we did talk to Mike Greer about this as well about you know the futures of, of Tomas Hurdle and Loom Couture, and you know he was very open uh, as he's been since the, since the start about you know if those guys want to. Um, go to a team that's more of a win now type uh, type team. Uh, he would certainly listen and and uh, you know maybe try to try to do what's best. But he also has to try to do what's best for the organization as well. So he listened to their their uh, you know their if they want to have that sort of conversation about moving on to another team. You know I think Mike Greer would be open to that, but it's also going to make sense from a shark standpoint as well. I mean. We just saw in the Eric Carlson deal that they're, they're not a team that's going to be interested in, in retaining a ton, a ton of money to, to move someone along. And we were talking about Tomas Hurdle. You know, he's got six more years on his deal after after this one, so that's going to be kind of a tough assignment. For a little bit sure, you know, he says he wants to uh, you know be a part of the solution here, but it's just a question of you know, how long, how, how much longer is that going to take, and, and does Logan really have the appetite to wait another two or three years to, to get back to the playoffs. He's such a great playoff uh, performer or has been over the course of his career that, you know, you know, he desperately misses sort of being in that environment. So, you know, a lot of questions to ask. I don't think, you know, nothing's going to happen this season, of course, but when you look towards next off season, um, I think that's when uh, you'll get a clear indication of where both players stand. How is the head coach David Quinn handled all this losing? Well, he, he's you know he's tried to sort of be you know upbeat about about this. You know he has a sort of a saying. You know you got to be honest, but you also have to be encouraging at times and trying to keep these guys in the right mindset. Um, you know, there's there's definitely been times when he's been upset and has kind of lost his patience uh, at times this year. But uh, he also understands where this organization's at right now, and 
and what they need to sort of do to sort of get out of it. And he's kind of just kind of coaching the players he has. And, and uh, you know, it's been tough too. I mean, you lose, uh, besides the Couture, you lose a uh, Mikhail Granlin for, for seven games. And, you know, he's a, a two or the number, number two or three center. So, um, you know, that all adds to it too. It just gives him some perspective about what he has in front of him and what he's working with right now. And he tries to, uh, or make it well work as, as best he can. Him and his coaching staff, I think, still still feel that this, uh, you know, this, this team this year can can come out of this and play some competitive hockey uh, for the rest of the season. Curtis, this was great. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the game tonight, and um, hopefully the Sharks get a win this season, just not tonight. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's Curtis Shelka from the Bay Area News Group, San Jose Sharks beat writer here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We are working to try and not jinx this thing. I know that we've really framed this in a classic Halbro way, pointing out that the San Jose Sharks are 0-8-1 through nine games this year. Pointing like out that six the, months in advance, you're like the Sharks have won the Stanley Cup, and it all goes back to that 10-1 win over the Canucks. Have we pointed out on a number of occasions that the San Jose Sharks are the only winless team in the NHL? Yes. Have we pointed out that this is a game that the Canucks should win? Yes, we have. We need to stop look, doing that. Look, they're uh, they're shockingly bad. I know that I ran through it with Curtis with regards to their schedule that they had a tough schedule and they've had some very difficult opponents. But we're we are now in November. They went the opening month of the NHL season without getting a victory. That's hard to do. Every now and again, you will be someone's trap game. That's what the Sharks are there for. Mm-hmm. They're going to be someone's trap game. They just haven't yet. I hope to God it's not tonight because I will feel terrible from a personal perspective that mm-hmm. we jinx the team because we are good at that. So uh, we tried to play this audio earlier, but uh, it's been a tough morning for the old Halford and Bruff show. I've been fine. Um, the, uh, we were off the air for a while with some technical difficulties. So I wanted to play what JT Miller had to say yesterday because we didn't get a chance to chat with JT Miller. We had technical difficulties yesterday. We had technical difficulties yesterday. Now, we're still going to try and have JT Miller on the show. It's probably not going to be tomorrow, maybe it's going to be next week before the Canucks head out on their road trip back east. I think they go to Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto. So maybe we'll have JT Miller on next week. But he did address the benching yesterday, and here's what he had to say. Well, it was four minutes, so uh, I really wouldn't put too much into it. I was pretty hot, took some penalties, and uh, the team did a great job killing it off. So, I mean, it was just a let me cool off for the second or the last couple minutes of the second period. So JT Miller really didn't get into it too much. He basically just, and there was no reason to get into it too much. It was kind of like, yeah, I was, uh, I lost my composure a little bit, lost my cool, I was running hot out there, took some penalties that the coach didn't like, and he sat me for four minutes. And he got, he got a little timeout. A little, a, a little timeout on the bench. Putting it. Let's not call it a benching anymore. Let's well, just it was call a benching. A little timeout. Yeah, he was able to cool off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he already responded well. In the third period of the game, he drew a penalty and then he scored a goal. Mm -hmm. So that's good. We saw the response. Um, But I I, I, see, I'm always hesitant to be like, and that's the end of the story, right? Like, I think in media too often we do that. We like put a bow on it and be like, well, we'll never have to talk about this again, Mm -hmm. right? You know, JT Miller, his personality is like an ongoing thing, right? And I love the passion that he brings 
And the Canucks as a team need a guy like JT Miller. Mm-hmm. Like they they really do. Um, there's all sorts of different discussion points, and I think people like people tend to like reduce the JT Miller audio or, or, or audio. The JT that's on my brain. The JT Miller debate to like you guys have been critical, so you don't like him. I'm like, well, no, that's not true. There's many things like JT Miller himself has admitted, like, I need to control my emotions mm-hmm. a little bit better. So every once in a while, he's probably going to need a reminder. The other thing that gets brought up is like, you were critical. You didn't even want the Canucks to sign him. That means you don't like him. Well, that's not true either. Right. Right. My main concern with the JT Miller re-signing was his age. He's the same age as Huberto. In Calgary, and, and I, I think maybe age is a factor with Huberto. Could it be different with JT Miller? Of course it could be different. But I don't think anyone should be taking a victory lap on the JT Miller contract negotiations and the contract situation. Like, if you liked the fact that he signed him, like, the issue was, like, how is this contract going to look in the final four years? Mm-hmm. Um and are the Canucks going to be, ever be in a Stanley Cup window while he's play, playing really well? Mm-hmm. That question is still very much out there. Right. Right. And nobody and nobody on either side should be taking victory laps or conceding defeat in any of these debates. I hope I'm wrong about the JT Miller contract. I hope it turns out that it was a great idea. And the Canucks can be in their Stanley Cup window while he's still performing well for the Canucks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the pushback and the criticisms that we, the Royal We 650, anyone that criticized the Miller deal, is that we put the last four years at the front of the conversation, if that makes sense. Like, all we were focused on, and maybe a little bit too much so, was the length of the contract and then what it's going to look like when he's well into his 30s and they still have a lot of years left in the depreciating part of mm-hmm. it, right? Like, And we get... I think sometimes we are guilty of looking at the back half of it before focusing on Well, the problem the is the half. front half of a lot of these deals have gone wrong. Right. The front half of the Louis Erickson deal didn't look too good either. Yes, but right now... Miller is producing at a very high level. And interestingly enough, I actually like that the fire still burns from within. It's amazing. It's, right? it's, it's great. The Canucks need a guy like him. It's all just, it's all about timing. Because you want to know what a lot of people's criticism of Huberto and Kadri in Calgary is right now? Yeah, they got no fire. That they no don't passion. care. They don't care. That they play for the Flames, but they don't have the flame within. Mm. I knew that was coming. Thank you. We're back on the air. I saved all this stuff for when we're actually on the radio. (laughs) Well, Uh, one of the things, I mean, one of the reasons, like, we requested to have JT Miller on on the station. Like, we reached out and said, we want JT Miller specifically because, first of all, we've been really impressed with his play. Second of all, we know he's a big part of the leadership group, so we wanted to talk about how that has evolved. But third of all, people are like, "Oh, are you gonna are you gonna ask him the like question? You were so critical about him. Are you gonna like are you gonna just suck up to him?" I'm like, no, I'm gonna ask him. Have you thought about turning thirty? And have you heard the talk? And what are you gonna do about it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I think that's a question for any player that turns thirty. How like how, do you, is it something that you think about that you turn thirty? Are, are you aware that people are kind of like hesitant to commit to any, any hockey player that turns thirty? Yep. Um, what do you think? Like, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And I'll just be curious to hear his response. So I, I want to hear it, you know, because I think he's a really interesting guy. 
Uh, of all the players that get interviewed, I think he's the most interesting on the Canucks because I think he's a thoughtful guy. Um, and I think sometimes he's caught between like saying, you know, like, um, yeah, there's some things I've got to work on and being kind of like, all right, I, I admit I've got some things. And then others will be like, who are you to tell me mm-hmm. uh, what I need to work on? I'm one of the best players in the NHL. Why don't you just watch me play instead of criticizing me, mm-hmm. right? I get the feeling like he's caught in between. Do you remember DK Metcalf when he came out um, and when people were asking about him about his penalties? And for a few times he'd been... Um, like, yeah, I got to clean up the penalties. I know that. But eventually he got to the point was like, listen, man, this is who I am. Yeah. It's kind of like a take it or leave it thing. Yep. And, and when you make a financial investment like the Canucks did to Miller, you're buying in on the entire package. He'd been here for a few years. You know what you're getting. And that's probably the one big difference between, you know, when we put it up against the Huberdo, Huberdo contract as a foil is the Flames took a really big risk because they had never seen him play with the team before signing him to a massive extension. like The Canucks knew exactly what they were getting with Miller. I don't mm-hmm. think there was any... I don't think there was any doubt in their mind that they knew what they were going to get in the first half of his contract, and I don't think there's any doubt in their mind about the risk that comes in the second half of that contract. They understood that they were getting a fiery competitor that was not a perfect player when it came to controlling his emotions, but part of that is the reason that, one, he's wired the way that he is, and two... I think can do the things that he does on the ice sometimes. I think if he was more muted and more conservative and the fire didn't burn as much as it did, I doubt he'd be the same player mm-hmm. that we see on a nightly basis. Right? There are a lot of guys in the NHL and, quite frankly, all professional sports who mail it in from time to time. I actually wanted, wanted to ask him about one of the quotes that I saw. I think it was in an athletic article. and I'm paraphrasing here where he kind of said, like, caring has almost gone out of style in the NHL like and he didn't use the word caring he swore yes he said like give a, giving a you know what is almost like a, an old fashioned notion um i always think like JT Miller would have been like the perfect 80s hockey player mm-hmm. he would have fit in he's a man out of time perfectly yeah Maybe, yeah. Well, maybe that's why Talk is so He's old school. Then. He is old school. Like, oh, talk is the coach absolutely. for JT Miller because he could wear his heart in his sleeve and Talk can rein him in when, he, when need be. And yeah. Miller will hopefully also learn from that as well. Because Talk had played like him too, right? He was a heart in his sleeve type of guy. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah. emotions got the best of him sometime on the, on the ice. So who better than Talk to help Miller with that aspect of his game? So you are listening to the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Sportsnet 650 is so back. So back. And you were back just in time. Uh, to hear me call him Jonathan Huberdoid, which someone pointed out. Yeah, which was, I, I let that slip. That was a nice moment for me, really. I so, am a Huberdoid. The, uh, the, the we program, are the Huberdoids. The broadcasting <laughs> excellence that we put out there on a daily basis. It's back for public consumption. we got a final hour to go here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Thomas Drance is going to join us on the other side to kick off the 8 o'clock hour. Then we're going to do what we learn. We're going to give away Canucks tickets. We're going to give away Kiss tickets as well. That's all coming up in the final hour of the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.